the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Business of Giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick, and thanks for joining me for tonight's show. As donors have become more strategic with their philanthropy, they have increasingly turned to philanthropic advisors for guidance and direction. One of the most highly regarded of these is Arabella Advisors, and you will hear from their CEO, Sam Pretty Ganguly, who provides us with an update to an old saying. Since you've been in the space, Denver, you know the sort of old philanthropy adage of the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. Mm-hmm. And I increasingly see today the three V's, voice, values, and vision. Oh. The bar has been raised a little bit if you're going to be a strategic donor. And then I will be joined by Gabriel Mondahano, the founder and CEO of Wash Cycle Laundry, a social enterprise based in Philadelphia. Uh, laundry's everywhere, and um, we we wash it. <laughs> um, uh, in some senses, a pretty simple business model. Um, you know, uh, beyond just uh, getting things clean, we uh, approach the business um, with a, a triple bottom line mission. So that's you know, people, planet, and profit. But first, the business of giving news digest for Sunday, February twenty third. There were five people who donated more than a billion dollars last year. Michael Bloomberg topped the philanthropy fifty list put out by the Chronicle of Philanthropy by contributing $3.3 billion. Binghamton University has announced a $60 million gift to fund construction of a baseball stadium from a family whose members wish to remain anonymous. BlackRock has made a charitable contribution of its remaining 20% stake of PennyMac Financial Services, with a market value of nearly $600 million, to fund the firm's social impact efforts to advance a more inclusive and sustainable economy. And finally, the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation announced that it will host its inaugural fundraising gala on April 30th on the back lot of Fox Studios, home to the storied film Cleopatra, starring Elizabeth Taylor. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Sam Pritiganguli of Arabella Advisors right after this. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizOfGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Observers of the philanthropic ecosystem generally focus on the donors and the work of the recipient nonprofit organizations. But another vital force are the advisors, those intermediaries who help direct and guide significant dollars to causes and organizations that have the greatest impact. Now, some of these firms focus on a particular area, such as impact investing, while others provide a whole suite of support services, including governance, advocacy, and grants management. 
Arabella Advisors would be one of the full-service firms. And it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their chief executive officer, Sam Pretty Ganguly. Good evening, Sam Pretty, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening, Denver. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Eric Kessler, who, of course, founded Arabella, was on the show a number of years ago, and I recall him saying that he was trying to provide the widest range of services possible under one roof. And there are a lot more services now than when he first had that thought. So just give us an idea, a sense of what Arabella Advisors does. So, Denver, we essentially help philanthropists and investors take their idea and turn it into impact. So essentially, we provide a full suite of services, everything from a strategy to implementation we are the de facto grant maker for a lot of organizations, all the way through evaluation, asking the fundamental question of, did my dollars make an impact and did they make a difference? And Arabella is one of the few places where you get all of those services under one roof. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe some listeners are asking, well, how hard can it be to give money away? But of course, I remember Warren Buffett saying that it was a lot easier for him to make his money than to give his money away. Why is it so hard to give away money to charity? Yeah, it's hard for three reasons. Um, At a tactical level, there's actually a lot of laws and regulations and compliance around giving, um, and not all donors essentially know that. I think it's hard at a philosophical level um, being able to separate out your heart, what compels you to give emotionally from the rational decision to give is actually a, a two very different muscles that, that individuals are flexing. <laughs> yeah. And the third is it's really hard to prioritize. Um, depending on one's perspective, there are a lot of urgent problems that we need to solve, many of which have a very long time horizon mm-hmm. on the solution set. And so coming up with a prioritized list can actually be very challenging. I'll add a nuance, which is if you are a family or you come from family wealth, there is the added dimension of family dynamics that um, uh, are challenging to wrestle with. And that's often why people turn to a philanthropic advisor to help guide them through that journey. What are you seeing in terms of the generational differences, and how do you bridge those differences when you're dealing with such a family? Yeah, we're, we're seeing three things. Uh, one is oftentimes the people who are coming into wealth today now in their 30s, 30s and 40s, have very different policy perspectives than their grandparents. Um, and as such, they are trying to maintain the family legacy and good name while also trying to shift resources to the problems that are urgent today mm-hmm. that may not be the same problems that their grandparents looked at. The second thing that we're seeing is uh, gender. Uh, many more women inheriting wealth and earning wealth and maybe having a different perspective on who they want to give to and why they want to give. So definitely a greater focus on sort of gender, women uh, uh, in, in their giving. And the last thing that we are seeing is a new generation. So if we think about millennials in the workforce, millennials in philanthropy um, don't want to go it alone necessarily. Mm-hmm. They're more willing to work with their peers. They want to network and they want to be more deliberate in terms of their giving. They're starting their giving journey at the age of you know 20 or 30 and they're saying, what do I want my impact to be? over a 50-year horizon, that's very different than their grandparents who, for the most part, earned their wealth and then became philanthropists in their retirement. Yeah. And as you suggest there, social media with these young people is that when they're thinking about a cause they want to support, the first thing they think about is starting a movement. Right. Or bringing all their buddies along, you know what I mean, and getting the word out. Since you've been in the space... 
Denver, you know the sort of old philanthropy adage of the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. Mm-hmm. And I increasingly see today the three V's, voice, values, and vision. Oh. The bar has been raised a little bit if you're going to be a strategic donor. And so uh, the ones with whom we work are being very intentional about thinking uh, of their philanthropic strategy as part of a more holistic strategy around social change, around movement building, mm-hmm. if you will. And another generational difference that I can cite is that when I started in this field a long time ago, it was pretty much grants and foundations and donors. Now it's impact investing, it's LLCs like Emerson Collective, and it just continues to evolve. So speak about the different vehicles and partnerships you're seeing coming together to get things done. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, grant making is a part of a strategy, and today donors are using a platform of vehicles. You talked about impact investing via an LLC. Sometimes we th- see that through a family office, if you will, the, the corpus of a family office. The other vehicle that we see increasingly is a donor advised fund. Mm-hmm. So it is no longer the case that a family foundation or a private foundation is the only mechanism for giving. For some donors, it may never be a mechanism for their giving. Donor advised funds are simply easier to use. Um, and uh, that is uh, also a sort of an additional platform that, that we see. On the LLC front, what I would say is people are thinking about social enterprises and nonprofits interchangeably. And on the nonprofit side, nonprofits are thinking about earned revenue models. So those sort of traditional silos between grantee uh, and grantor are really blurring. And you're seeing an explosion, a blossoming of a lot of these platforms. Now, from my perspective, what I would say is these platforms are really solving for an end. Oh, I don't want to say an end run, but uh, uh, they're a workaround to the tax regime. Mm-hmm. Structurally, it might be worthwhile to think differently about the tax regime. Uh, but, but nonetheless, these platforms are an evolution of some of the constraints that have been put on these respective uh, platforms, if you will, or uh, respective charitable vehicles. Gotcha. In the philanthropy world, everyone talks about big bets. You don't do that so much. You talk about big builds. What's the difference? So my perspective is that the field of philanthropy has no shortage of good ideas. Um, So it's long ideas but short execution capacity, Mm -hmm. and that's really what big builds are. So as donors talk about increasingly $100 million, $200 million types of philanthropic initiatives – what is the infrastructure that is necessary to, to get that done? You asked me earlier why it's hard to give uh, money. Part of it is nonprofits don't have the wherewithal to very quickly receive such large sums of money. They don't have the capacity to be able to put that to good work. Mm-hmm. They've got a, a great vision. But when the rubber meets the road, they don't have enough people. They don't have enough uh, sort of uh, bodies to execute on that. So big builds are really about having the right infrastructure to carry out a vision of a philanthropist. And, and we believe that that is as important as the big idea that they're bringing to bear. You um, manage a suite of independent nonprofit organizations that provide fiscal sponsorship and project incubation to this wide range of charitable initiatives. So I want you to unpack that a little bit, Sam Pretty, starting with what is fiscal sponsorship and how does this arrangement work? 
So fiscal sponsorship is a legal term that essentially uh, allows for a public charity to house multiple nonprofits within its borders, mm-hmm. if you will. These uh, fiscally sponsored projects, as we call them, have independent advisory boards. They have independent governance and budgetary structures, but they benefit from the uh, 501c3 status, which, by the way, can take up to 18 months to get. Right. And they benefit from sort of a shared uh, uh, back office or, if you will, shared operating infrastructure. And if you talk to a nonprofit leader, the majority of them are social change agents Mm -hmm. and they want to spend their time on the programmatic mission. They don't want to worry about how checks get written. They don't want to worry about ticking and tacking on all the grant agreements. So fiscal compliance. Have somebody else do that, please. (laughs) And so essentially a fiscal sponsor provides, if you will, an opportunity to get more efficient on those things that don't bring joy to the social change agent while ensuring that they are compliant with all of the different regulations and norms across all 50 states. So that's essentially what we um, provide. The Tides uh, Foundation also has that. Mm -hmm. There are many, many fiscal sponsors that have sprung up in part because this is such a need in the nonprofit community. Yeah. It always sounds a little bit like Amazon to me, which is simplifying the process and making it easy for the consumer or in this particular case, the donor and getting a lot of that stuff completely out of the way. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is, um, you know, we talked about big bets. Um, the philanthropic community is increasingly talking about scale, right? Yeah. How do we scale our solutions? Really hard to do. It's hard to do, especially if it's one donor and one idea. Mm-hmm. So to a certain extent, this operating infrastructure provides scale, at least at the operating level, if not always at the programmatic level, that I think is a real need in, in today's uh, world of philanthropy. You guys are involved in a bunch of issues. We don't have time to go through them all, but I want to talk about a couple of them. And one that you're really well known for, even outside of the philanthropic community, is your good food practice. And that's probably because our food system is at the root of so many of our problems, and it really is pretty badly broken. What are some of these challenges? So food is uh, food's, food's an exciting place for a couple of reasons. One, it's a crossover between grant making and impact investing. Yeah. So you can actually invest in a lot of good food ventures. The second is it's pretty place-based. So to a certain extent, if you want good food, it tends to be proximate to you, tends to be close. And that's what philanthropy at its heart is. It's often pretty uh, uh, proximate. So three challenges in food. One is demand. Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that we increase the demand for healthy food? Two is supply. How do we get good food to where it needs to be? And three is what policy changes do we need to make in order to make good food more accessible? And, uh, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has already done that through making, for example, farmers markets very accessible. Mm -hmm. But there is more work to be done in the area of child nutrition, for example, and others. Um, And so Arabella really provides support in all three of those areas. We help bring together investors who collectively invest in early stage food ventures that Mm -hmm. have a social purpose that is associated with that. We help donors think about the advocacy lever that stitch together a lot of different um, uh, legislation, both at the state level and at the national level. And then we think about how to increase uh, the supply, especially in the heartland of good sustainable food in an economic model that works for them. Yeah, yeah. My sense would be the demand is pretty well spoken for right now. Boy, I see such demand for healthy food. And the younger you get, the greater the demand. But it is across every single demographic. Uh, The other two are probably a bit more challenging. Let's get to this one about the capital flows, though. 
and the Impact Investing you were talking about. Give us an idea of the kind of things that are being done where you're working with them to direct this capital to some of these interesting food startups. Yeah, so there's been a, uh, I think there's some common ones that everyone knows, things like Ugly Produce, for example, where there's a misshapen vegetables and fruits and they don't make it into the grocery store, but they're healthy, they're nutritious. That's a, a pretty common one. Yeah, I heard one. a guy talk the other day, um, uh, uh, heirloom. Yeah. Uh, vegetables and fruits. That's right. Heirloom for vegetables and fruits, beans, um, lots of different kind of uh, alternatives. The things that we're seeing, um, plant-based alternative uh, uh, to meat, um, a, a cool opportunity we looked at was tomato-based alternatives to tuna. Uh, we had a, a client who was very interested in sustainable seafood. Well, how do you make sure that you uh, protect the apex predator? That's the, the That's tuna. Uh, tuna. Yeah. Um, tomato. There are now companies that are thinking about tomato that essentially tastes like tuna, mimics yeah. that taste and the consistency. consistency. I live on tuna. Have you tried this? <laughs> I know. I, I have. It actually tastes Does it good. really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll tell you another alternative, which was uh, neat. This was a te- company that had a technology that was essentially a bitter blocker. Mm. It blocked bitterness. And as such, it reduces the need to put added sugars into food. This has not just health-related outcomes, um, uh, but it has uh, alternatives to sort of the cultural perception of what good food actually is. And so we look for a lot of these um, uh, companies that cross the spectrum of uh, equity, so equitable access, um, health, Mm -hmm. uh, agriculture, um, and seafood, right, and and waters. And so food is also very interesting because it's cross-sectional or intersectional and helps us think differently about impact outcomes. Right. It's so interesting. You know, another piece of work that you do and work with your clients on is the intersection of housing and health. Now, what's going on there? So there's another place where I would say there's a lot of innovative solutions. Health and housing are um, highly correlated, meaning um, if you don't have secure housing, your health outcomes are diminished or vice versa. If you have reduced health outcomes, it's because you often don't have secure housing. So we are beginning to see very large housing providers uh, or interested in housing like Fannie Mae uh, reach out to large hospital communities and say, what can we do together? Hmm. What are some shared solutions? I'll give you a a, a great example that I heard about recently. Um, uh, It was a developer who was thinking about a housing, um, uh, affordable housing unit that placed grandparents alongside foster kids who are aging out of foster care. So 18-year-olds with those that were looking to downside their homes and bringing together two different generations, generations that are often displaced Mm -hmm. um, to create a nurturing environment of sort of care and support. This was more on the social and emotional health rather than sort of physical health. But those are some of those intersections that we're seeing and the creative end of solving social problems that are highly interconnected. Generations United. Generations United. You know, we're also beginning to see philanthropy play a big, big role in prison reform efforts. And this is one where you do get that bipartisan support, um, perhaps for different motives and different reasons, but who cares? It's there. What impact has philanthropy had on this issue, and where do you see that going? So I would say this is an area where we've seen a lot of new money um, uh, come into, if you will, come into use 
even in the last six months, since there was a pretty significant legislation passed in the Senate uh, around prison reform, uh, three interesting areas. One is a movement around prison divestment. And mm-hmm. I would say that the child separation has really accelerated the awareness around private prisons and the profiteering associated with that. So we are seeing more and more institutions divest away from private prisons as part of their investment portfolio and their investment strategy. And we're seeing banks essentially saying we are not going to fund private prison building. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one aspect of it. The second is we are seeing some technology donors saying, how do we erase using technology a criminal record so that um, uh, your uh, uh, background can be expunged uh, without you having to go through all of the hoops associated with that? And then the third movement that we're seeing is uh, essentially some advocacy-related matters that only individual donors can participate in that institutional foundations can't, but essentially saying, how do we re-enfranchise returning citizens? Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we give them back sort of the ballot, if you will? And the Florida initiative was uh, uh, that restored the rights for 1.4 returning citizens was yeah. one of those. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is those individuals that are really interested in prison reform are thinking very holistically mm-hmm. about what it takes to have returning citizens. And I don't mean to be cynical. Um, I do think this is a bipartisan issue, but I also think it is a, a very real function of an economy that is at full employment, mm-hmm. where you essentially say, look, at there is an entire part of our workforce that is underemployed or unemployed. How do we make sure that that's a, a great pathway? One of the amazing companies, B Corps, that I really look at, I don't know if you're familiar with them, Grayston Bakery. Yeah. They They've been um, on the show. They they have an open hiring uh, process and they have a large portion of returning citizens. They really are a model of the kindness that you can exhibit to returning citizens and, and really make them part of our broader economy. So we see the if you will, the gamut of philanthropic initiatives associated. And and it's one of those cultural norms that has changed very rapidly, just as the LGBTQ movement has also changed, where I think there is a different cultural undertone um, that is driving a lot of this philanthropic capital. Yeah, Grayson's incredible. You walk into their office and you put your name down. And when a spot opens up, they take it in order, like a deli counter in some ways, or a bakery maybe. And uh, and everybody gets a job without a question, and they save a fortune on recruitment. Absolutely, they also get very uh, high retention rates as a result of That's that. Right. And so, kind of end to end, if you will, there's a huge value. And I will just say, as someone who you know is an employer, uh, uh, many of the laws and regulations in place really make it hard uh, for someone who has a, a, a criminal background to be employed. Oh, yeah. um, in addition to the cultural norm, so uh, I admire the fact that they are bucking that trend. Absolutely. And people should remember that the next time they have Ben and Jerry's ice cream. That's because they're right. Probably the chocolate in that came from Grayston Bakery. Let's turn our attention to the field of philanthropy uh, for a moment. And, you know, some of the core practices that we go about may unwittingly be leading funders to perpetuate the inequities that they're trying to eliminate. Now, do you see this implicit bias? And if so, what can be done to address it? I think there's a very real conversation around implicit bias in philanthropy for good reasons. One is um, we are seeing a high concentration of wealth in the sort of 1% of the 1%. And I think there's a very natural and real question around the power that those individuals have with their very large gifts and grants. Mm -hmm. And so I think the optics of how large is my grant – 
what does that do to the power dynamic with my grantee organization is an important conversation to have so that donors don't unwittingly exercise greater voice and influence than they may wish to have. Mm -hmm. I think the second is how do we do our grant making? So for example, we see donors that say, I want to get money out to frontline grassroots organizations, but I have a due diligence process that requires three years of audited financials and you have to fill out my grant report in English um, when in fact we're trying to advance uh, causes led by uh, Latino communities Mm -hmm. as an example. So there's some very sort of stylized processes that need to change um, in order for us to get rid of these implicit bias. I think the last thing I would say is representation. I walk into a room and when I hear about people uh, saying, well, let's how do we affect communities of color? And there's not a single person of color in mm-hmm. the room. That's like check number one to say maybe we've got a bigger problem yeah. here. And uh, the 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 interesting part of philanthropy is it's a pretty clubby field. Yeah. The bad part of philanthropy is it's a really clubby field. So I always encourage our donors to say, how do you look beyond your networks? How do you get comfortable going into rooms where you're not – the representative of everyone else there to actually have that conversation. I've really admired Jeff Rakes from afar, who I think is having very, very honest conversations Mm -hmm. about that. So I am um, cautiously optimistic that the conversations are being had, but it's a field that's a little slow to change. There's not an urgency. Um, And so it will take some time, I think, to make those changes. Just one other side note, um, like many fields, uh, there is a generational transfer in the executives that are managing Mm -hmm. large foundations. And I am seeing those changes to a certain extent based on who's coming into the foundation today. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes uh, donors are too worried about making a mistake. So often with some of these newer startup organizations that are really on the ground, some of them may be a little uh, sketchy. But 99% of them are not, and they're afraid how this is going to come back to them. So they go to the tried and true, and that's why we stay within this narrow band and really don't get the expansive uh, problem-solving that we, the, uh, the sector so badly needs. And I will often talk to a donor, especially if they come from a, you know, a business background, to say you have to think about your grant-making from a portfolio strategy. Yeah. Um, and you're absolutely right. The, the reputational risk is so great, mm-hmm. um, and also their – um, it is hard f- to recover sometimes in the grantee community to build that type of trust. So I think there are good reasons mm-hmm. for the reputational risk um, that, that donors are being thoughtful about. Yeah. Um, how do you see the role of technology changing philanthropy in the next decade, the possibilities that it holds, but also the neat things we need to be mindful of? I think technology – I often think of philanthropy as the sector that technology has left behind. <laughs> well, you think um, of it exactly the way I do. <laughs> and I think that will change, quite frankly, as more tech donors make their mm-hmm. uh, uh, philanthropy known, um, so simply by, by that fact. Um, I think technology has the great promise to bring – more rigor into evaluating impact. I think it also has the ability to change access. That said, there's no app for philanthropy. Um, and so I think the the real delimiters are um, that technology is can be invasive. It really sort of can um, come in the way of the individual. And, and to a certain extent, philanthropy is very individualistic. I also think this sector does not think about cyber risks in the way that they should and could. There's a lot of wealth in this sector and there's a lot of opportunity. So I think there are some 
um, opportunities to really beef up the uh, uh, cyber infrastructure across the philanthropic and nonprofit community writ large, as opposed to them going it alone. Yeah, yeah. Well, just read the Save the Children stories, and you'll think it's good. And also, I would say that the sector doesn't, from my point of view, think enough about risk. That's you right. know, when I look at uh, donors and uh, you know a foundation giving to a nonprofit organization, there's never a discussion about this might not work. It's sort of like the – it's a four-letter word, risk. So we just assume everything is going to be fine. You would never do that in the for-profit world. I think that's completely right. I also don't think that they, the sector does enough in the area of scenario planning yes. related to risk. Outcome A could happen, but also outcome B and C. And ironically, philanthropy is supposed to have the longest horizon to solve problems, but their grant making is either one year or three years. So their planning horizon and their vision horizon are often mismatched. Um, and I so see I, a lack of alignment. <laughs> I, I always – I see an opportunity, uh, which is to think a little bit more about building scenario planning and risk mitigation into grant making strategies. Yeah. Talk about advocacy. You know, $60 billion is given to foundations. Maybe 4% of that goes towards advocacy work. But advocacy works. Um, you know, I have to look at our apartheid in South Africa or LGBTQ. Um, what do you advise your clients regarding advocacy, and where have you seen it to be effective? So I do acknowledge that there are uh, limitations to what an institutional foundation can do mm -hmm. based on um, laws and regulations around advocacy. However, individual donors don't have those limitations. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can talk about system change without a point of view on advocacy. So we advise donors to fund advocacy organizations. That is something they are able to do. Um, and we do advise them to, if they have the means, uh, to actually participate in direct advocacy measures for system-level change. Um, I think advocacy is critical not just for policy outcomes, but frankly to change cultural norms. Um, and that is one of those, I would say, safer areas for an advocate in which to invest, which is what are education and awareness programs that help to change cultural narratives to see the social change we want to sustain over the long run. Um, speak a little bit about your philosophy of leadership, the influences in your life that has helped shape you as a leader, and maybe a lesson you've learned that has served you well in your current role. Well, I would like to think that I'm still learning as a leader. Uh, so uh, I <laughs> Well, that's one of the lessons. <laughs> that's a lesson. Um, I actively seek feedback. Um, it is, uh, and I try to seek it in a way that is um, not intimidating to others. Uh, so, but but you know, there are some some power structures that make delivering direct feedback hard. So I try to try to actively seek that feedback. Um, I had a former CEO who gave me really good advice, which was um, there are times where consensus is a really important tool. There are times where the appearance of consensus is an important tool, and there are times where you have to be an executive and right. know how to make those decisions. And so I've tried to be very clear with teams on here's where I truly am genuinely seeking your decision. Here's where I've already made a decision, but I, um, I think us getting together – airing all of the different um, spectrum of opportunities, understanding what risks are to be able to manage that. We'll, we'll get to that outcome. And here's where 
Um, I actually genuinely cannot make a decision, mm-hmm. and I need your perspectives. And I think trying to – where I find points of tension with a leader is when that's not really clear. Yeah. And where I see a lot of wasted energy in organizations is when you know that a leader has made up his or her mind and everyone's sitting around the table and not sort of spending a lot of time. Um, I'm, a, I'm a working parent uh, with two teenage kids, so there is nothing I prize more than my time and the time of people I, I work with. Um, the social sector um, doesn't always optimize to time. The corporate sector and certainly the consulting business maybe oversteers, uh, but that's always a good guide for me. Um, the other leadership sort of uh, tick, trip, uh, a, a trick that I have taken is um, I always I'm, I'm very particular about meetings. I find people spend a lot of time in meetings, mm-hmm. um, so I tend to look around the room and I say, "There's six people here. Do you need me for this meeting? And if so, why? If you don't." guess what? Let me step out of this meeting. And if you guys can't get to a decision, come to me to help sort of, you know, be the umpire uh, on that. Um, And I think over time, empowering people to come to decisions on their own has just been instrumental. I hope that it's helped leaders in the organization grow and stretch. Um, And frankly, it's given me a little bit more time back in my life. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Well, I've always hated email um, because of meetings. Because I started my career long enough ago when there wasn't email, and meetings were pretty small. And you had to go around, and you had to get everybody's secretary at the time for a meeting. <laughs> now you just say, oh, I'll invite everybody. You right. know what I mean? And you have more meetings. And, and I would also say, just say what you uh, mentioned as being a, a mother of two teenage boys, you can't always have consensus. Right. Every once in a while, you have to make a decision. Um, let me close with this, Sam Pretty. You know, Arabella advises families on their giving to increase impact. Now, many of the families listening probably don't have the wealth of some of your clients, but I guess at least some of that advice would apply to them as well. What should they be thinking about when it comes to their own philanthropic giving? I think as a general rule, we believe that philanthropy should bring joy. Hmm. Um, and I think the the conversations and the field has veered a lot towards sort of the technocratic. But first and, and foremost, giving should, should give you joy. So what I would encourage families to do is say, what brings you joy? And is there something that brings joy to you as a family? Or is there something that brings joy to you as an individual? And if you um, uh, find that your giving is sort of individual, then structure your philanthropy that way. Too many families struggle to sort of uh, uh, be aligned on an issue when sometimes it's not there. So that's the first thing I would say. I think the second is find a cause that you can not only write checks to but that you can participate in. Uh, it's very um, rare to see sort of uh, hands-off givers today, but find something for which you can apply both your time and your treasure, I think is the second thing that that we would say to, to families. And the third um, the the joy and the pain of philanthropy is patient uh, is patience. Social change is very hard and it does take a long time. So if you're going to find something, ask yourself: Can you see yourself doing this five years from now, mm. ten years from now, twenty years from now? Can you see yourself learning the hard way, uh, like donors have done in, in the education reform space, for example? And if so, are you okay with um, uh, trying something new in this p- pretty philanthropic s- space? And what I say by that is if you're really set in your ways um, already without having done that educational journey, sometimes that's a little bit of a red flag for families. So those are some of the questions that we ask. Um, I believe 
that giving at any level is meaningful and purposeful. Um, and I would encourage um, individuals, regardless of how large of a check they can write, to spend time thinking about those fundamental values and the expression of that through their philanthropy. All wonderful advice. Well, Sampriti Ganguly, the CEO of Arabella Advisors, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and maybe what some of these donors will find there to be useful. Our website, www.arabellaadvisors.com, will give you an overview of our services. Um, We have some great case studies of how we've helped philanthropists go from idea to impact, and you'll get to meet our great staff along the way. Well, there you go. Well, Sam Pretty, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show. I could have talked to you all day. It was a pleasure as well. Thank you for your time. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizOfGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. If you look long and hard underneath a dirty pile of laundry, you just might find an innovative and creative social enterprise. One that is good for the environment, while also providing the so-called unhirable with a second chance. It's called Wash Cycle Laundry, and it's a pleasure to have with us tonight its founder and CEO, Gabriel Mondahano. Good evening, Gabriel, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thanks so much. Tell us about Wash Cycle Laundry and how you came up with this idea to begin with. Got it. So uh, Wash Cycle Laundry is a social enterprise, and we're a commercial laundry service. Uh, so we were founded in Philadelphia, and we operate in Philly, uh, Washington, D.C., and Boston, Massachusetts. Um, day by day, we do laundry for businesses of all kinds. Um, we grew up, um, I mean, our first client was a yoga studio. Um, we see, service what seems like every CrossFit gym in Philadelphia. Um, but we've grown up from there. So we work with a number of universities. We have a federal contract. Um, we um, service um, uh, basically every airline blanket and napkin that flies on 30 airlines out of Boston Logan Airport um, and uh, everywhere in between. So uh, laundry's everywhere, and um, we we wash it. <laughs> uh, so that that's uh, in some senses a pretty simple business model. Um, you know, uh, beyond just uh, getting things clean, um, we uh, approach the business um, with a, a triple bottom line mission. So that's you know, people, planet, and profit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in terms of our environmental mission, um, we've invested in a lot of technology and practice cool. inside our plant to mm-hmm. save water and energy. Gabriel, did you grow up doing your own laundry? Uh, I did grow up doing it. So I, I had a favorite shirt in middle school. and um, uh, I had to wear it every day. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wanted to, yeah. and uh, my, my mom wouldn't wash laundry every day, so I learned to wash it myself. Uh, uh, in short, uh, I, I did my third grade science fair project on... Um, uh, on detergents, I, I tested Tide versus Dynamo too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that that you was my, my spark. Uh, Tide won by by a landslide. Uh, my, my my godfather was a, a, a detergent chemist at uh, Consumer Reports uh, here in New York, so <laughs> he gave me a, a, a few tips on how to how to do the test scientifically. But um, yeah, so uh, I, in I your yeah. DNA. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, let's begin with how you pick up the laundry and sure. you use these truck trikes um how do they work what are they um how much laundry can they hold 
Yeah, so we um, have used bikes since day one, um, and uh, we have the. I mean, more recently, we commissioned these truck trikes, which are uh, made by a company out of Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, they are tricycles, um, but the most commercial grade trike you can ever imagine. So they've got an electric motor. They've got lithium ion batteries. Um, they we custom designed this particular truck to um, t- take uh, a, um, a, a sort of a tall bark bulk cart. So have you ever seen a movie where like you know they have the the, the chase scene through the hotel kitchen and then the laundry? Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, right. you, you see those big plastic vans that are about five feet tall, uh, five, five 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 feet tall. Um, so th- th- this this um, this this uh, trike has a. Um, um, sort of a removable ramp um, mm-hmm. so you can load one of those trikes and then uh, ratchet it down um, and then carry it. So that, that carries about 450 pounds of, wow. of dirty linen. My goodness. Um, and um, we, we we tested them first in, in, in Worcester. Um, we are going to deploy them in Philly and D.C. and um, and they've been great. Uh, we also just use standard bikes and trailers. Um, mm-hmm. That's how we started. So um, there's a company, Surly, that makes a, a really sort of uh, uh, high-grade you know uh, trailer called the, uh, the Billy Trailer trailer uh, and we've uh, just put laundry carts on top of that that'll carry about 250 or 300 pounds of laundry and um, some of our bicyclists um, you know uh, you know prefer that as well so I mean we, we, we've, we've tried a lot of different products in, the in shape is yeah. bike delivery in a city actually an advantage over a truck yeah so I mean definitely for um, especially sort of these small and mid-sized like storefront clients um, you know clients who are you know sending us two three four maybe five or six bins or you know bags of, of mm-hmm. laundry per day um, they've got a significant need. I mean, if if you're a gym or you're a salon, I mean, you have a lot of laundry, and I mean, a lot of times these these owners are you know loading those in the back of their car and taking it home to wash. Um, a, a bike can you know service those storefront accounts you know ten times more efficiently than mm. than, than any truck. Um, we get there faster. We get there more cheaply. Um, and, uh, and and more reliably um, than, than than trucks, uh, yeah. and so our, our our bike routes and, and city centers are just you know um, whatever financial metric you want to choose are, are just hands down um, you know uh, better better than uh, a truck delivery route. Is bike maintenance a challenge for you? Um, it, it it is. Um, I mean, you, you know, most um, bikes are not really designed to uh, take a. Um, like sort of a commercial duty cycle. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I, I wish that there was a bike out there that, you know, had, uh, I, I mean, if you get into a car that's passed a state inspection, you can turn the ignition. And if it turns on, you can be reasonably certain that it's, you know, <laughs> not, you know, gonna, gonna, gonna work for the yeah. day. Um, you, you don't have anything like that level of reliability in, 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 in most bike uh, manufacturers. So, I mean, we, we do go through, um, you know, uh, bikes, you know, pretty frequently. The mm-hmm. truck trikes are, are, are much more commercially designed so you know we're optimistic about about that and you know that they can get to a commercial duty cycle but you know m- most bikes are consumer products and, yeah. and um you know and we're not a consumer. not built for this <laughs> yeah, so. 400 pounds of laundry yeah. i bet it's a great marketing opportunity when these bikes are roaming around the streets you know and people look at the side of them yeah uh you probably generate some business from that yeah, so I mean, it's uh, it, it's how a lot of people uh, downtown know us. It's uh, how I mean, word of mouth, and it's like the bike guys. I mean, it, it is a bit of a double edged sword because you know, as we've grown up, um, you know, sometimes uh, you know, the 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 same clients who, um. Will, will use us because of the bike. I mean, sometimes larger clients will assume that that's our only mode of service, and um, 
uh, you know, or that were just not capable of serving their need. And and so, um, you know, it, 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 it has uh, worked for us, and then sometimes it works against us too, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it still makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've picked up the dirty laundry. Yep. Now we got to wash it, and WashCycle does laundry in a very environmentally friendly way. Explain how you go about doing that. Yeah, so um, it's a little different in each plant, but um, our, our, our biggest plant in Boston, I mean, we um, invested in a water recycling system, um, which basically means that all of the um, uh, all of the water that comes out of the washing machines um, drains into a holding tank, um, and then that uh, water is um, like purified mm-hmm. um, through a, a multi-stage process, um, and um, and then returned for uh, particularly the rinse cycle. Sorry, the um, the wash cycles, so sort of the the dirtier cycles yeah. of of the uh, process. And then we're using fresh water for the rinse mm-hmm. um, to make sure everything is is completely um, clean by the end. Um, and we get really great results with it. Um, the amazing thing about water recycling is that most of the energy use inside the plant and laundry is for water heating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, we're heating water to 140, 150 degrees to to wash the laundry. And once that lo- that once that water is recycled, it's still has retained most of that heat. Um, so even though you call it water recycling, you're also recycling the energy as well. Um, and and so th- th- that's, you know, just sort of a, a huge uh, commitment of ours and, and, and uh, you know, makes a, a big impact on, on, on our footprint. Yeah. Well, aside from it being environmentally friendly, it probably uh – produces some cost savings as well. I mean, is your water cost savings and your uh, energy cost savings down from what a normal wash cycle would be? Oh, yeah. We we, um, we save um, about twenty to 30,000 gallons of water per day um, using this method in the um, in the Boston plant. Mm-hmm. And um, every 7,000 gallons of water in Boston is about $190. Um, so, you know, on a daily basis, we're, we're, you know, avoiding, you know, $600 or $800 worth of expense. Um, and, um, yeah. And that, that, and that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that definitely adds, adds up. up. Yep. So, Gabriel, if this is one of those homemaker shows and you were giving advice, what tip would you give for someone about how they could go about doing their own laundry more effectively? Uh, so I get a lot of questions about top loaders versus front loaders. Okay, uh, and and, and I you am did say one of your yeah. family members worked for Consumer Reports. <laughs> yeah. Let's see what they let's uh, hear the report. Uh, yeah, front loaders all the way. Uh, and 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 the reason why is because um, in a top loader, um, in order to get all the clothes wet, you have to fill it to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in a uh, side loader, you just sort of fill it halfway, and then the clothes rotate through the water. And and that's good for two reasons. One, it means you use less water, also because you lose uh, you use less energy to heat that water, but your detergent can be more concentrated because ultimately how clean it gets is a little bit less about how much water there is and how much uh, and much more about the, de- the concentration of the detergent. So when you use front loaders, you're able to um, reduce your water, reduce your energy, and reduce your, your, your chemical use, and, and that's, all, that's all good stuff. You also get a really good mechanical action with the, uh, mm-hmm. the clothes tumbling through. Um, and so um, all in all, you know, front loaders all the way. <laughs> Who knew? Great advice. Well, Wash Cycle Laundry has helped to change people's lives by hiring the historically unhirable. Tell us about this initiative of yours. Yeah, so it, that's been core to our mission since um, since the beginning. Um, so um, we we typically call it second chance hiring or, or um, sometimes mission hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have an explicit mission to um, you know create opportunities for people who have been excluded from the labor market. Um, we uh, track four categories. So um, one is people who have been formally incarcerated, uh, uh, people who have been formally homeless, uh, people who are in recovery, or people who have a history of dependence on public benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, there's you know uh, more 
more than one, um, you know, people will check more than one box. Um, but, um, it, you know, I, I started the business, um, you know, with, with that goal. Um, I had come from the nonprofit sector, uh, working in economic development and workforce development, yep. um, and felt that there was really, you know, a, a few links in the chain. Um, th- there's a lot of, um, you know, if, if there's a lot of programs for job training and they're great. Uh, and you have a lot of what you call transitional work programs where people can get their sort of first work experience in a, um, sort of in a nonprofit work environment. Uh, and those are great and have amazing outcomes. Uh, and, and, um, and then I, you know, I felt that there was this huge gap between that and sort of regular quote unquote normal employment. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, um, and that, um, you know, mission hiring and, and second chance hiring, you know, within a for profit context could help fill that gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so our goal is really to be a supportive employer, uh, and a permanent employer, uh, for, for people so that, you know, um, after somebody has graduated from a job training program or has left a transitional work, you know, placement, they can, uh, land in a place where, um, you know, yes, there would be less support than in a, in a, a focused nonprofit program. Um, but there would be, you know, significant longevity uh, yeah. so that we could bridge the gap between, uh, between those things. Yeah. How do you find these employees? I mean, do you recruit them yourself or do you work through other organizations who become a, a pipeline and a feeder system for you? Yeah. So we always work with, uh, other organizations. Um, we view ourselves as, you know, one step in the chain, right? So if you can imagine somebody who's, um, you know, uh, who, who has just been, um, uh, released from incarceration, you can imagine that on day one, they're going to have a lot of needs, um, yeah. Uh, and um, and those, frankly, are not needs that uh, employers, even mission-oriented employers, are, are equipped to address. So on day one, you know, they might work with a nonprofit organization that focuses on everything from housing to you know uh, you know settling custody mm-hmm. issues to uh, mental health. I mean, just any any range of things. Uh, where we come in is you know once somebody is you know quote unquote ready you know employment ready yeah. um, that that um, you know we can be that, that supportive employer. So we're we're always working with nonprofit partners in each. City uh, to source our employees, um, and um, and then um, and then you know uh, working with them after hire to uh, you know support those employees and, and retain them in employment. What's the average starting salary? Um, so in Boston, I think we just raised it to thirteen forty. Wow, that's um, a good starting salary. Yeah, in in um, Philly, we're at eleven seventy. Although mm-hmm. our annual raise is is uh, is due now, so we'll probably take that over twelve soon. <laughs> so, uh, and um, in Boston, sorry, in DC, I think we're at fifteen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and there's really an opportunity for people who come to work at Wall Cycle to move up. Correct. Yeah, so we hire all of our supervisory um, team and and many of our management team through internal hires. Um, so, um, like our general manager in DC, um, well, we actually have two now. Um, they're co-managers, and um, one started out. Um, uh, on sort of the front line and laundry uh, in in Massachusetts, and the other started out um, as a front line delivery person in DC. Um, so we we look for talent from within. Um, it's a big you know uh, again a big commitment of of ours, and mm-hmm. and I think that's really where um, employers can make a, a big difference. Um, you know, it's one thing to. Um, uh, you know, get that first job. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, um, it, you know, getting and, and that's a huge step, right? But yeah. but um, landing a job even at, at 1340 an hour is, is not um, the end to somebody's economic, uh, you know, troubles, like it's, it's, it's the very first step in a long journey. And so we want to make sure that people can, t- uh, you know, uh, take a, a couple more steps with yeah, us. Yeah, that's great. So Gabriel, what does a typical day at Wash Cycle Laundry look like? 
Oh gosh. Uh, so <laughs> is there ever uh, a yeah. typical day? Uh, so uh, I've one one thing about the 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 sector of, of of laundry that we're in is sort of like the the, the sun never sets on wash cycle laundry. So I mean, we work seven days a week, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we're never more. I mean, and when I say never, I mean we're never more than six hours away from a deadline. So you know, at, at one a.m. on Christmas Day, you know, if we don't show up to Logan Airport by five thirty, then a plane is going to take off without its blankets, and and that is a, a big deal for our clients. So. Um, you know, uh, you know. So, so one thing is that you know, th- there's always production. There's mm-hmm. always a bit. You know, there's always that 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 time pressure. You know, I mean, laundry comes in, laundry's got to get processed. It's got to go out. Sun so never sets. You know, uh, so so I mean, we, we typically start at the day. Um, you know, we'll our, our delivery staff usually starts first. Um, you know, usually very early in the morning, four or five in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll bring the first loads back for the day. Um, our staff will, depending on the plant, start between six and nine. Um, you know, we sort everything out. We load it up. We um, try to get um, you know our, our finishing equipment going, uh, and then from there, it, it hopefully is a pretty calm. Like you know, 100 pounds goes into the washer, 100 pounds goes to the dryer, 100 pounds goes to the folding machine, and then 100 pounds gets delivered. Um, but you know, there's always, always, always you know uh, things that happen. You know, I mean, we're, we're working with uh, industrial machinery, and one of the things you learn with industrial machinery is it's not. Um, I mean, it's it's often temperamental. So you know, depending on what happens that day, you know. Um, uh, you know, yeah, your crisis, entire, management. Yeah, crisis yes. management, and then you know our clients are also the same way. I mean, so so I mean, all of our clients are working in tight, you know, turnaround and you know time frames, and um, you know, I, I mean, somebody, you know, we might be servicing a hotel, and you know, that hotel might call us and say. You know, oh gosh, like you know, normally our check-in time is three p.m., but like you know, I, I just found out that our sales manager promised this big group that they could check in at noon, mm. and so I've got it. You know, <laughs> like I, I'm out of sheets. You know, like yeah, you know, yeah. can you can you get here Start by pedaling. you know eleven thirty? <laughs> you know, and and, um, and and those you know, of course, those, those things happen. So I mean, just, you know, we, we we wash all the mops for a convention center, for example, um, and one of their biggest shows of the year is in town, and so um, you know, they, they've been asking for same day turnarounds. You know, uh, day you know, day after day, you know, this week. And so, um, you know, that, that throws everything from the loop. Sure. Talk about some of those major clients. Who are, who are they? Um, so we work with um, uh, a number of um, uh, independent and, and some some branded uh, hotel chains. Um, we can you tell us such as? Uh, so we work with um, the Hilton Boston Logan Airport okay. uh, as is the probably the biggest by rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, there's a, a great partner of ours called the Citizen M Hotel, which is a European brand that's yeah. coming to the U.S. and um, th- they've been a phenomenal partner uh, and some others. Um, we uh, service um, just about uh, every airline that flies out of Boston Logan mm-hmm. um, through uh, a, a partnership we have with a national or- organization. We're a subcontractor there. Um, we service the Veterans Administration. Um, we service um, the Philadelphia Eagles facilities team. Um, we we'll let that go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, we service the uh, PA Convention Center um, uh, and um, any any number of other people. Mm-hmm. Gabriel, you elected to incorporate Wash Cycle Laundry as a social enterprise as opposed to a nonprofit organization. What were some of the factors that went into making that choice? Uh, so um, some macro and some personal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think personally, you know, when I founded the company, I had uh, worked as a nonprofit executive director and I had worked um, in the leadership team of another nonprofit. 
Um, I, I love the nonprofit sector. Um, I think at my point in my career at that point, I wasn't ready to jump into another nonprofit. So yeah. I think that was the personal factor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I think from a, a macro perspective, um, you know, I, a, a few reasons. I, I think from a broader impact, you know, what I was trying to accomplish uh, and what I, I want to accomplish with Wash Cycle is to be that, you know, that link in the chain, uh, which is to say that here's a model that um, for-profit employers not only could do but but should do, you know, um, both because uh, they're – you know, members of society, but but also because it makes business sense, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's a that's a lesson you've got to prove from the for profit sector. I, I don't think you can be a nonprofit, um, you know, uh, pursuing a social mission and and then and then sort of using that as a as a as an effective model for for profit companies. So mm-hmm. I think that's a, a a big reason. I think that raising capital for an operating business like this is is certainly much easier um, in the for profit sector. Um, you know, there there are much more well trodden. Um, uh, uh, pathways for um, for for profits to raise debt and equity than there are yeah. for for nonprofits. And then finally, I think there's convergence between the two. So, um, you know, I, I mean, there's for profits that are social enterprises that access philanthropic capital, and then there's you know for profits that are increasingly able to access you know sort of commercial capital in different ways. And so, you know, I, I don't think the distinction was so black and white anymore. Yeah. So. Talk a little bit about that business model. I mean, you generate a lot through yeah. your customers and your clients. You have investors, maybe perhaps even some philanthropic capital. What does that mix? Look look like? Yeah, so we've got a, a pretty diverse set of uh, financial stakeholders. Um, so we've had equity investors who are both um, sort of private angel groups with a social impact mission. Uh, we also have had um, philanthropic groups and, and um, you know, other, other uh, types of funds. Um, so like a really innovative one uh, recently is called the Boston Impact Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, are, are really looking to leverage um, sort of both philanthropic and sort of individual capital um, to make a uh, difference in, in the racial wealth gap in the sort of greater Boston area or in yeah. eastern Massachusetts. Uh, so we, 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 we've, um, we've, we've brought on a lot of uh, different types of, of, uh, of equity. Uh, we found that a number of foundations and philanthropies are more comfortable with debt as an instrument, and so uh, we we have a number of loans with uh, with with, um, with foundations and and other sort of philanthropic actors. I think that's the right way for philanthropy to engage with um, with uh, with social enterprises, and that you know here's a agree. way to support. But mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we are for profit, so it's not appropriate that we you know really just. Uh, hold on to the money. <laughs> Take the grants. Um, and run. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do think that um, I, I think that I, I mean, I wish that more philanthropies were were more comfortable with sort of non debt instruments. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, just w- whether it's equity or some sort of a hybrid, um, I think a lot of um, a lot of nonprofits default to debt because that's what they know. And, and it's sort of easy to understand. But um, it's not clear to me that social enterprises should. I mean, I think there's a lot of social enterprises who get loaded up on debt, um, mm-hmm. and and that's not always a good financial move. Um, so um, yeah, so we we have a, a number of different financial stakeholders. Yeah, yeah. How would you describe the corporate culture at Wall Cycle? What makes it different and distinctive from, let's say, other social enterprises? Yeah, so I think that uh, one of the things that I always tell people when, um, well, so let me answer the question first. Uh, so I, I think that we are. Um, uh, uh, um, first and foremost, I think we're committed to the mission, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that we are uh, committed to the laundry. And and what I mean by that is that uh, I mean when you're in a a such a tight turnaround um, uh, uh, environment, then I mean it, you know it it it's uh, it takes a lot of um, effort to sort of be able to focus on this like sort of 
intangible long-term goal uh, when you've got like a customer in your ear who's saying like, you know, oh my gosh, I need now. money. <laughs> right? I need it now. Uh, and, and, and yeah, exactly. And so um, I think that, you know, getting that right has, uh, uh, is, is, is challenging, but I think the, the, the managers, the management team that we've been able to assemble does it really, really well. Um, and um, so, you know, it's sort of this, this part firefighter, Part, um, you know, roll up your sleeves and, and get it done. Um, part, um, you know, uh, you know, just really committed to, you know, the impact we're trying to create. And, and I think disproportionately, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, but disproportionately, I think our management team uh, often has personal background that makes the meeting, the, the mission, um, like particularly meaningful for, for, for them yeah, um, yeah. And, and helps them keep it um uh, front and center when when um, you know uh, you, you know the, the the crisis of the moment might have to do with you know fitted sheets or you know uh, or, or, or mop heads or, or whatever it might be. Well, you have your first child on the way, so you're going to be doing a heck of a lot more laundry any, <laughs> yeah. day, any day now. Come this spring. Well, I, I am the launderer of my household. So. <laughs> I would I would hope so. So, what's next for Wash Cycle Laundry in the ways of new service, new cities, expansions, financing? What are you thinking about the next chapter to be? Yeah. So. We, we recently, um, you know, filled um, uh, our, our first shift in, in – so we, we built a plant in Boston um, in 2018, mm-hmm. um, and we've filled that mostly to capacity. Um, and so we're excited to sort of, um, you know, t- tie that up. Um, I think that uh, one of the things we learned through the Boston expansion is that, you know, having the right facilities and equipment can sort of be really transformational. Um, and so um, given that we sort of grew organically in Philly and D.C., we're really looking to invest um, – in our physical plant um, so that we can provide a, a, a better foundation for growth in our other two markets. Um, so um, I, th- I think we have also identified a couple of customers, you know, customer segments that are really yeah. interesting to us. And so, you know, we basically want to match the right facilities with the right customers and the right, pi- right pricing model. And that's all coming together now. And I'm really excited to uh, to see what comes out. And maybe so. even someday in New York City. Who knows? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so New York City is a rough and tumble, yeah. rough and tumble laundry market. I, 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 uh, I, I, I Everything's more expensive in, in New York than, uh, except for laundry, which is cheaper. And I, I'm still trying to figure that one out. But uh, I, I don't know that I'm willing to jump into this right here. <laughs> so. Well, we'll stay tuned. Well, Gabriel Mondahano, the founder and CEO of Wash Cycle Laundry, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and how people can learn more about what you do if they should be interested. Sure. Yeah. So we're um, uh, washcyclelaundry.com. Uh, and um, we've got an about section. Um, there's a few forms for contact. Uh, in particular, um, you know, we're always looking for hiring partners in uh, the markets where we are, um, in, in Philly, uh, Boston, and, and D.C. Uh, and so uh, I believe there's a contact form. And so, uh, you know, we're always, you know, eager in meeting uh, new people who, who um, can help us, you know, source really talented folks. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Gabriel. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Great. Thank you so much. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be J.D. Crouch, the president and CEO of the USO. Thanks for listening. Have a great week and do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving.